Welcome back, podcast listeners. We're here for episode 78 today, and we're talking technical investing with Craig Sheaf. So I want to introduce Craig. Craig is the Managing Director and Portfolio Manager at Technical Investing. Craig has over 30 years' experience working with and analysing public companies, including over 20 years directly managing portfolios of clients. During this time, his investing skills have been developed and honed whilst managing portfolio mandates, superannuation funds, and funds for high net worth individuals. Craig has also consulted to some of Australia's largest investment funds as a technical analyst. Always striving to enhance and improve his repertoire of investment techniques, Craig has undertaken extensive research and trading using methodologies based on human nature and the pattern of share price movements over time. Craig's open-minded approach and methodology have enabled him to identify significant themes and trends before the majority of investors move in. This resulted in identifying technology, the internet and security as substantial investment opportunities in the late 1990s. Since technical investing was established in 2006, this approach has continued to identify the new and important themes and trends. Skills in technical analysis have also enabled Craig to identify critical changes in direction of both market and individual shares. A background in chartered accounting, including taxation, providing business advice and business valuation underpins Craig's investment analysis and ensures a financial approach accompanied by sound risk management. Craig, thank you very much for joining Tony and I on the podcast today. Uh, Thank you very much for having me along. Um, It's It's great to have you here too. Yeah, I think um, today's, today's one our, invest, uh, our listeners will really love, I think, especially when we're talking about ways to invest and, and you know, looking at certain opportunities. Um, I think the listeners really hone in on that. Excellent. Look forward to it. Okay, Craig, can I start with, um, I mean, last time we were chatting face-to-face, it wasn't over Zoom, it was at the European having dinner together, which was a lovely evening. So it's, uh, but thus we are doing it via Zoom today. But I just want to start off uh, with a couple of things that were in your last market update, if that's okay. Um, And under the heading stimulus, I'm just going to read out the first paragraph because this this is a question we get asked a lot um, and I hear just generally out there in the public and um, I think your analysis of it is magnificent. So if I can just read out the first paragraph. So stimulus. So how is it the share market can go up with record high unemployment, large parts of the economy struggling under shutdown, uh, social distancing, much uncertainty around second waves uh, and conflicts with China? Uh, yeah, it's a it's a fair question, isn't it? And it, it's got quite a lot of people perplexed. Uh, I mean, historically, uh, bull markets are born from from bear markets, and uh, you know, so when markets um, fall and prices get low at that point in time, there, there's an opportunity, and um, we saw a huge sell-off happen because of COVID-related matters in March. And what happened post that was a massive amount of stimulus that got pushed into the market. Um, Central banks around the world supported the market um, and we had huge amounts of stimulus. And one can go back and look historically and see what generally happens, particularly when the Fed uh, steps in and prints money uh, or adds to their balance sheet. Um, We saw during... um, 
quantitative easing one, two, three, four, not sure what number we're up to now, but um, you know, the first few probably saw three, four trillion dollars pumped into in onto their balance sheet and into the economy. Uh, we've just seen three or four trillion come in over the last number of months. So surpassing all those previous QEs. Um, and historically, generally, probably about um, every $100 billion that they take on and pump in probably increases the S&P 500 by around 40 points, we estimate. So um, it's been one large driver uh, of, of markets has been that stimulus and money being pumped in. Okay, to, to add to that, then, one of the discussions we uh, had an open discussion uh, we had at Kofkin Bond about a month or so ago when I was talking to the young bulls in the room, me being the old bull. Uh, so the, 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 the grumpy old man, as I sometimes get called to refer to here, uh, Craig. But basically one of the things I said that I've seen in 28 years in this industry this market fall is very different to other historical market falls based on the fact that it's on a pandemic, not based and unemployment is based on a pandemic, not like, for example, the GFC, which was uh, fraudulent investment and banking activities as an et cetera, or the uh, you know, Asian property crisis or the Russian currency crisis or the tech wreck where anything with a dot-com had a $100 million valuation overnight. This has been driven by something which is extremely different. Um, and as a result of that, you know, the unemployment numbers might be very high at the moment, but there's also obviously the potential for those unemployment numbers to reduce probably far quicker than say what happened during the GFC. Would you agree with that or what are your thoughts? You know, I, I agree with, with that. I think the market looks forward and tries to look you know, even six, 12 months ahead. And, and one reason it's probably held pretty well is, as you said, um, we don't know how long this will, will last for, but it, it is a temporary um, scenario. It, it will bring about large changes in a lot of industries where things have been fast-tracked and those changes will, will remain. Um, but that, um, that change that's, that, it, that it's brought about, um, as far as the market's concerned, I think it does have a limiting time frame. Yeah, so even if we're talking about this pandemic, um, obviously with the exception of Victoria, the rest of the world seems to be opening up again. Um, but and people seem to be out there and spending money. So there was a lot of savings done during lockdown, of course. A lot of people were saving cash. Uh, but there seems to be a lot of people now back out. You know, we're talking Europe, UK, US, uh, some parts of the US, etc., where the economy is are opening up once again, and people do seem to be out there spending once again. Yeah, it's been one of the surprise factors has really been the amount of spending, and I guess it's that stimulus, and here in Australia is a good example of the, of the JobKeeper and the $700, where some people are probably actually even receiving higher amounts than they did previously in the younger generation. So that stimulus and retail spending has really surprised obviously that online factor um, where the, a lot of the online stocks have done far better than most people would have uh, predicted or, or thought back in February or March what would occur post this. Um, so stimulus has had a, had a big factor uh, and people are out, 
outspending. But it's, it's again, it's particular areas. So obviously restaurants are struggling, but that money's been taken and, and taken into online buying of particular items. So I guess it's still the same sort of money floating around. It's just being directed in, in different areas. Yeah, I still have my business shirts turning up on the doorstep once once a quarter. My new business shirts, just not wearing them as often. That's all. <laughs> so it's uh, so for my online shopping. Um, so with, on so that, with that, sorry, with that, Craig, um, can you touch on if things are changing, the goalposts seem to be changing with the business. How how do you go about your investment approach? Do you stick to the same sort of approach with all your investing? Investing, I, I uh, view it as a bit like a jigsaw puzzle and um, the pieces do keep moving around. So I think it's a continual job of reviewing what's changed and valuations and where you need to be putting, putting those funds. Yep. But generally, the big themes and the general trends stay pretty much in place. The software and technology trend that's been around has, has been there for a long period of time, but it's just been fast tracks. You know, it's just had fuel poured on it. And so what we probably thought was going to happen in two to three years, I think even Microsoft CEO came out and basically said, you know, we've just seen two or three years worth of digital transformation in two or three months. So that trend was still there, but it just got fast tracked. Yeah. I think we're seeing quite a bit of that that happening yeah Craig on that if we talk about Microsoft um, their story is a pet love of mine if you take Microsoft as the example you know share price prior to the tech wreck and afterwards or even if we go to you know so we look at say 1998 share price or if we look at 2008 share price of Microsoft we had a total market cap of about 330 billion the GFC here to drop to 196 billion, yet its earnings only dropped by about 6%. Uh, share price obviously had a substantial drop. Um, but if you, you know, had the courage to hold on to that stock in 2008, it was about $900 billion in market cap before it dropped to about 760 in the last quarter of 2018. And then of course, once again, if you held your nerve and held on, uh, in just to August 2020, you've seen valuations, you know, well over the, what, about one and a half trillion uh, valuation. Of course, it's come off with the late end NASDAQ uh, drop in late August. So, I mean, but once again, if you're taking that as an example now, you've got a reputation of getting into good tech stocks early. Um, and one of the things you look at is obviously forward earnings. Uh, but one of the strengths that you look at with some of these companies are based around their recurring revenue and uh, customer base increase. Uh, can, you, can you explain that and why you look at that rather than sort of the lumpy earnings or the new widget being sold, et cetera? Yeah, it's obviously quite difficult to go and resell a new widget each time. And I guess also at this point in time in software and technology, valuations uh, are given a higher level if you've got that reoccurring earnings. So obviously the security of the business, if you've got reoccurring earnings, it's, uh, it's better. But um, also, I guess we look at it, but that reoccurring earnings tends to get valued higher in the market as well. So we do look for those software as a service style businesses to invest in that have that repeatable earnings that will come in each month. 
Uh, and if they can have low churn on that, then any growth that they bring in just adds to that, that revenue over time. So it really gives them an opportunity to take that revenue then and reinvest it back in the business to grow that business at a faster pace. Um, yes, I think that that's a key. And just while you touch on Microsoft, it was interesting with Microsoft that uh, unfortunately, while Balmer was leading it, I think it was maybe over a six or seven year period, the share price actually did nothing. And it was really once they bought in a new MD and a new change and Microsoft really took on the cloud and moved in that direction that after a period of time of that being implemented, Microsoft's success really, really took off. So it's, I think, finding those recurring earnings, but then also finding the management team that can position the company to grow those correctly. And even on a massive company like Microsoft, that management change just made a, 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 you know, a huge difference. Yeah, reinvigorated the company in a way. Correct. And then we move that back down to obviously the smaller end of the market, which we try and identify, I guess, the, the smaller emerging companies coming through. Um, you know, management is even more crucial. Uh, they haven't got as much support. And so it's really about then finding the right management team and the right characteristics that can take that company, company through on the wave. Now, Craig, in saying that a lot of uh, these smaller companies, um, say, especially in the tech industry, they're basically just not researched. Uh, you know, your, your top 20% basically of companies in the ASX 300 might have research, but a lot of these smaller ones just don't have research, so they don't get on people's radars, or fund managers stay away from them until they see, um, you know, the trend has already happened, the growth has already happened, uh, so when they're a bit larger before they get in. You, though, uh, once again, have a reputation of identifying some of these companies quite early, um, early in their stage. They might be listed, but you do identify them. How do you look for them? What is your, what is your as, as much as you can share, what is your criteria in respect to looking for these companies? And are you able to give a couple of examples? Yeah, it's a, it's a great point in that... Uh, the vast majority of uh, funds managers and investing capital goes towards the larger shares. And so it really gives a lot of opportunities to hunt around and find the smaller ones coming through. I've just been looking at the software and tech market since the 1990s. And I just haven't seen so many opportunities that are around today uh, with the cloud that's enabled Australian companies to actually grow and take on the world and you know, become global players. You know, Zero is a great example of that. Altium, there's been a whole host of Australian tech companies that have, have done that. And um, yeah, so we're looking around, I guess, for the, the next ones that, that will fit into that category. So for us, I guess we get, um, because people will know we look at that style of companies, I guess we've got a, a large network of corporates, brokers, people that source and bring those ideas. And then it's a matter of filtering through a lot of those companies uh, to work out what's the business model, um, is it sustainable, um, and the crucial factor for us, I guess, is, is management. So uh, the attributes we generally like with, with management, we like them to be shareholders, um, we like them to be owners in, in the business and have a substantial amount if possible, so we align our interests. We like to look at their key performance indicators, their KPIs, to see that they're also aligned with shareholders. Um, we look at the management skill set to see 
and particularly with newer companies coming through, uh, you know, entrepreneurs can't have all the skill sets. So the skill sets are lacking. Have they brought in other key people that can supplement that uh, and, and other board members that can add those skills? And where possible, um, we like to see the history of the management that they've been able to deliver to some success previously, or again, if they're newer, younger people coming through that they've added people that have had that success before. If you go back and look at a lot of the unicorn companies and their success at some point, they added somebody that had been involved with a billion dollar company before, within the recent example of the Canva lady who's been extremely successful, you know, at a point in time, she brought on uh, somebody with that skill set. Atlassian was the same. And so we like to see at some point that they're open to that or, or have already done that. And then we like to see, okay, historically, what have they said that they would do and what have they done to see, you know, have they overachieved? Um, have they met the expectations that they've set? Because it's all about, I guess, trustworthiness, credibility and honesty. If we're going to invest our money, our clients' money, uh, you know, we want to build a trust management and want to be almost like a partner in them in helping their business to grow um, and then take the benefits uh, along the way. So we need to see some strategic thinking, some innovation and, and definitely passion with, with, with what they do. So, Craig, you have... Um you know, every business was founded by an entrepreneur uh, in some way. So it doesn't matter how big they are today. They were originally an idea in somebody's head, you know, which might've uh, grown, you know, there's a lot of overnight successes that have taken 20 years to get there, but it's um, the, uh, you, you spoke about management, you spoke about that entrepreneur and I was looking at the history of WeWorks as an example where, um, it seemed to be more of an entrepreneurial cult following, but somebody who didn't necessarily have uh, that experience and you saw, you know, the, basically the collapse, you know, these, these outrageous valuations, you talk about those unicorns, etc. So at what stage would you say to management, you know, so the CEO or the chairman of that company might be that founder, um, and still has that entrepreneurial mindset, but doesn't have skill sets in other areas um, and doesn't necessarily have people around them telling them that they have to get that. So what stage do you get in there and say, um, okay, to take this business to the next level, here's the type of stuff that we need to work with. And when, when would you walk away uh, from a company and say, you know, there's too much ego involved in WeWorks. We're not going to get involved as an example. So it's, um, so where would it be where you, you know, would potentially say great idea, great business model, but wrong management and walk away. At what point do you do that? I guess when we're initially doing our due diligence, we try and identify that those things are in place and we may not invest if they're not in place. Mm. Um, sometimes we think the valuation will be is so low and the potential so great that we will, I guess, front run that a little bit and invest at that pre that occurring, believing that that is going to occur. And I guess that's where the risk is a little bit higher. Um, if we see that after a period of time that management aren't making those necessary steps and they're not being reflected in revenue growth or user growth 
uh, for the company, um, then we will have those conversations with the company. And if they're willing to, and most companies want to grow, they want to see a high valuation, they want to see success. Um, and so most are embracing of it. If, if they don't, then uh, we'll either just simply exit or if we've got a reasonable position and we can't, and we like the potential. Um, there has been the odd occasion where we will force a board change, where we speak to other shareholders and, and we'll make a change. Now, ideally, I don't like to do that and it can be difficult. Um, so yeah, much prefer to try and work with management, use our context, contacts globally to source the right people to bring in and, and add that, you know, what's missing for that, for that company. There is, there is a saying, you know, it's, a, it's an old saying, but uh, loose lips sink ships. I think it came from about World War II um, or even prior to that. But the, when you're an ASX listed company, compliance is paramount. You know, everything a board member or a CEO states is scrutinised uh, by the market. Now, Coffin Bond is a private company and if I say we're going to do this and we do it and we only hit 50% of our target, the only people, the person that really suffers is the shareholders and me. Um, on that basis, you know, we've spent money, we haven't got the results that we want. When you're an ASX listed company though, sometimes, you know, that entrepreneurial spirit has to be dampened in some way because you can't be talking about the dreams and the visions. I think it was Bill Gates who said, you know, people uh, quite often overestimate what can be achieved in two years, but underestimate what can be achieved in 10 years. So, so from that perspective, how do you have that conversation with someone like a Tony Kofkin who has taken Kofkin bond and now we're an ASX listed company. How do you have that conversation with Tony Kofkin and say, mate, you got to get off Twitter, you know, and I'm, I might be referring to Elon Musk there not necessarily myself but how would you have you gotta, that you, you gotta get off facebook <laughs> <laughs> craig, craig craig and i are facebook friends he knows what oh, i write you <laughs> might not agree with it all but he knows what i write so it's uh yeah so how, how do you how do you do that how do you get you know how do you t say to tony kofka mate no more facebook posts from you anymore I think it's just really a matter of sitting down and again, we try and do this before so we don't get into this situation, but it's sitting down with the, with the company and saying, well, you know, Tony, what do you want to achieve out of this? You know, where do you want this business to go? Um, you know, what are your goals over the next three to five years? And then saying, well, you know, your current strategy, the way you're going about it, it's not going to get you there. This is what investors like to see. This is what, you know, we've invested in hundreds of companies, reviewed thousands of companies over the last 20 plus years. This is what they like to see. You're not delivering that. Um, so you're not going to get there. You're going to really struggle. You need a higher valuation if you want to make acquisitions, if you want to grow the business. Um, are you aligned to make some of those changes and for us to bring in some support to help your business to grow? Or because if you, if you say the same way, you're not going to reach your potential. And I think it is pretty obvious pretty quickly um, which way Tony wants to go. And then we'll see in the following few months whether there's any action taken and then we'll just simply make that decision, okay? The great thing about being listed is we can exit Obviously, if it's early stage and we've got, you know, 5% of the business or something, that's much more difficult. Um, and we may have to look at some alternatives. Yeah. So, so let's talk about valuations at the moment. We have, um, you know, 
historical ways of valuing it doesn't matter whether we're talking about you know uh, Benjamin Graham or um, you know or any any of the great value investors of the past uh, but valuations at the moment there does seem to be some fairly high uh, PE ratios in the markets uh, but obviously also too money is really cheap right now interest rates are actually really cheap. So what are your thoughts in respect to current valuations uh, and you know, moving forward whilst we're at these historically low interest rates? Yeah, I think at the globally, moment- Globally, uh, globally, obviously not just talking Australia here, but taking a global view. Yeah, I think it's really interesting because um, interest rates are a driver for valuations. Um, and when we look at valuing a business, you know, you look at its forward earnings and as uh, Buffett will do, you know, he'd take the next earnings over the next so many years going forward and then discount that back to today's dollars to work out, well, what should that business be worth? And then you have to apply a discount factor for that future earnings. And that discount factor is uh, a factor of risk and, uh, and interest rates because that's, that's the cost of that, of that money. So when interest rates are, Five percent. You apply a, a discount factor to that future earnings, and you might say, you know, generally, you know, you can value a business at maybe in the market at 15, 20 times earnings. When that interest rate is near zero, then that multiple goes up. And I think what's probably been missed in the market a little bit is 12 months ago, the 10-year bond rate in the US was two percent, um, and Today, it's 0.7%. So it's had a huge fall, but the share market's at a similar valuation to, to what it was back, back then. So the, that has a big impact on, on valuation. So at the moment, if I step back and go, okay, the S&P, you know, we don't really know, I guess, what this coming year's earnings are. I think the estimate's probably about $150 um, per S&P point is general consensus coming forward, you know, which puts the S&P on around 20 times earnings as a general. And you'd say historically that's a bit high. It's probably 17 times as your long-term average, but your long-term average interest rates is probably, you know, three, four, 5%. So um, the overall market for me doesn't look, you know, it could be valued a lot higher based where interest rates are. But then you take a look at individual areas, which is obviously you've got some technology stocks that we don't value at PEs anymore because they don't make money. We'll value them at five times revenue, 10 times revenue, 30 times revenue, 50 times revenue, which is a bubble. And at some point- You're talking, are you talking afterpay there, are you? Willard's on mute, so he can't, he can't come in and say, don't say that, don't say that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's lots of companies. I mean, many years ago, I looked at Salesforce, um, which is just about to enter the Dow 30 in, in the US. And it was always traveling at those multiples and always looked overvalued, but it just kept delivering and achieving. And, um, you know, it had its ups and downs, but it, it continued, you know, it's going to be a Dow, Dow 30 stock now. So it, it is possible, but it's much more difficult and your risk level so much higher um, when you've got those sort of multiples. You know, Tesla's been on those multiples for a long period of time um, and it's had periods where it's fallen, um, you know, like the, at the beginning of September, it fell 30% over four days or so. So it, 
the risk is just much higher. So my general comment is I don't see, I think there's pockets of way overvaluation where you need to be very careful. So it's a matter of, it's a real stock pickers market at the moment. Generally, I don't think the valuations are such where we're going to say, like we did back um, where previous bear markets came into place where I think we're going to enter a multi-year bear trend. I think that will happen, but I still think we're, you know, a couple of years, two or three years away from that. The risk is when interest rates start to go up, that will be when valuations um, change. But where we sit today, um, generally we're okay, but you've got to be very choosy as well. So if we, if we take all that into consideration of where we are today, I mean, obviously from a day-to-day -day basis, there's going to be volatility. Whether we're in a bear market or a bull market, you're still going to have volatility. It's just whether it's volatility with an upward trend or a downward trend. But if we're looking, you know, a couple of years in the future, two to three years in the future, um, there's, you know, for good companies that have good cash flow, there's great opportunities uh, out there looking forward over the next, say, three to five years. Uh, what are your views uh, on that? Yeah. Now, obviously, we can't talk short-term volatility because that's just going to occur. Uh, so this is a longer-term view. Uh, a longer-term view that can could change in, you know, in a quarter based on what happened with, I think, your January uh, market update from memory did speak about the fact that you thought the market was a bit over um, overpriced. You did look at shorting the market. You thought it would come off. Uh, you didn't necessarily think it was going to be a pandemic that would do it <laughs> that came down. But uh, so we do, we can get shocks like that occurring, obviously. But if we're looking, say, three to five years from where we are now, what, what are your what are your overall views? That can change, obviously. We'll give you that. We'll give you that benefit. <laughs> so we do quite a lot of long-term cycle work and we have some groups that we tap into in Europe and overseas that specialise in that as well. And over time, that's generally been pretty accurate. And we're obviously quite long in this bull market cycle where you know, we bottomed in 2009. Um, and our general thesis is um, we're still in a bull trend. We, we, we have these strong pullbacks and in March, COVID was one of those. We were looking for a pullback. We weren't probably looking for quite as much, which was enhanced by what occurred with COVID. Um, but we thought there was one more multi-year push to new highs, which would come about because we've, we've had monetary policy stimulus, you know, let's, let's say pre-COVID. And what should happen next is fiscal stimulus, where governments step in, do stim um, infrastructure spending and such. And I think what just happened again, a bit like the technology space, what, what's happened with COVID is it's actually just put all that on steroids where we had to have more monetary policy come in to compensate for the high unemployment and what happened in the world. And now there's probably a bit more of that to happen, but what they're really looking to happen next is for fiscal stimulus to happen. So that's where the governments need to step in and uh, infrastructure, which we're seeing happening here in Australia. Uh, we will see happen in the US, you know, where the Biden gets in and his $2 trillion um, green energy uh, stimulus package comes into place, or where the um, Trump gets back in and uh, you know, he's always been talking about doing a stimulus package for infrastructure, which didn't occur in his first term, which um, you know, I think he'll be doing next. We're obviously seeing that happen in China. So with all that occurring, we think there's still that next to occur in the market. And with 
the central banks are basically telling us what's going to happen next, which is we're pumping money in, we're going to keep interest rates really low, we're going to keep interest rates low for at least the next couple of years. And as the Fed recently said, we're not thinking about lifting interest rates, we're not even thinking about thinking about lifting rates. Mm. So that's going to lead to, I think, what we believe is a quite strong period for the next couple of years in the market. At any point, as you said, we could get a 10, 20% pullback as we're going to get these pockets of where we get overvaluations in particular areas. And um, you know, we need that to consolidate. But I think with that stimulus, low interest rates, we've got a couple of years where there's going to be some generally good money made in the right areas in the market. And I think what we're going to see is a little bit of inflation starting to come back. Um, we've never had a US president that has wanted the US dollar to go down. US has always had a dominate the world, strong US dollar policy. And Trump is very clear that he wants the US dollar down to make the US more competitive, especially with China, et cetera. So I think being most commodities and a lot of the world is priced in US dollars. If we start to see that US dollar continue to decline, that's going to bring in some higher commodity prices, some higher inflation, and that's going to lead to you know, some you know, good opportunities, I think, in the resources space as well. And so tapping back at that um, multiple, that's one area of the market that uh, is not overvalued. There's a lot of resource companies that are being priced at you know, under 10% of their net present value of their projects. Um, there's obviously iron ore and gold that's done really well, and you probably can't say that, but there's other commodities where there are quite low valuations. So it's, um, yeah, I, yeah, think no, I, think, I think to add to that, your, your theme at the moment in your portfolio seems to be driven, uh, well, not driven just by, but there seems to be a bit of an emphasis on software, technology and resources. So, it's, uh, so there does seem to be a bit of a theme there that you're having moving forward uh, with, with those two sectors in particular. Do you want to just touch on that just a bit more? Yeah. I mean, resources, as you said, it's not just gold and iron ore, but there's a whole range of things there. Correct. I think uh, splitting the two, software and technology, we're just in that period of the world at the moment. Uh, I think I recently saw a, a strategist in the US and said, could the 2020s be like the 1920s? And there's lots of similarities where there was a pandemic in the early 1920s and there was a roaring 1920s um, and there was the Industrial Revolution, etc. And, and here we've got the technology revolution where um, whether it's electric vehicles coming through, um, AI, um, med, med tech, there's just a huge change in what's happening in technology. So I think that's a really good hunting ground to, to look for opportunities, uh, which, you, you know, which we are doing and, and have done. And I think the other one is the world and markets work in cycles and the commodity complex topped... Um, depending whether it was 2008 or 2011, but you know, it, was, it was sort of 12 to 10 years ago um, when China was booming, which was when a lot of the commodities reached their peak. And so that's been falling for 10, 12 years where you've had underinvestment in looking for new resources. It takes 10 odd years to drill and find something, prove it up, get your environmental permits, raise your money, 
build a plant, it's a long time frame. So when those cycles change, they tend to last for some time. So we're seeing those commodities start to turn up. And I think with that electrification of the world um, and technology thematic and electric vehicles, whenever there's a big change in, um, in an industry, there should be a big opportunity. And I think obviously with billions and billions of dollars being spent um, by car manufacturers around the world towards EV, particularly post 2023. Um, I think VW is going to have 60 EV models out by 23. Um, a lot of the governments are putting um, legislation and such in place for encouragement. So I think that is all going to drive um, an increase in commodities. Um, and particularly that EV, whether that's a lithium or a cobalt or a rare earth complex. And the other thing that I think we all probably forget about sometimes is that the world middle class is growing extensively. There's probably 150 million people a year moving into middle class. Um, and they all want washing machines, air conditioners, fridges, etc. And so that ongoing demand for resources, particularly when we've had 10 years of a lack of supply, is going to catch up. And we think that time is coming. And so we're yeah, using that as an area to, to hunt for some opportunities in that area. That sounds like a repeat of the both the 1920s and the 1950s. Okay. Uh, so in regards to, I mean, everyone wants a washing machine now. So it's, uh, so, but, but with the, as you said, with the rise of the middle class globally, uh, so we're not just talking obviously in uh, first world countries where, you know, our, our middle class, uh, our middle class here in Australia is, you know, say substantially better off than middle class in India as an example. Uh, but the the middle class in India, the, I mean, if you just have a look at China over the last 20 years, Shanghai or even Wuhan, where one of our staff members comes from, and obviously where the pandemic started as well. But I think 20 years ago, they only had a population of 400,000. And now it's something like 15 million. Um, and a very wealthy, it's it's been industrialised, but extremely wealthy. So it does seem to be... Um, on the back of the tech revolution that we have gone through, created a huge amount of wealth globally and a huge rise in the middle class. And of course, with a huge rise in the middle class and in incomes, they want things, so they buy things. Uh, so there just seems to be that repeat. It's just that it's rather than being done on the conveyor belt, it's now being done on the back of tech. Yeah, correct. I, I think I read a statistic around 50% of the world's populations currently classified as middle class, but over the next 10 years, that's going to go to over 60%, which is where you get your 150 million odd people a year moving into that. So, and a lot of those, you know, India and China is going to account for 40% of that middle class and the um, world's emerging economies is going to account for 75% of that, that middle class. So there's a real shift that's occurring and they're going to want electronic gadgets and technology and um, how do you, as an investor, play that thematic? Um, I think you look for when prices are low, undervalued in a particular area and start to see that thematic changing and we're seeing that occur um, 
you know, in, in some of those particular metals at this point in time. Yep. Okay. So Craig, in closing, uh, something that we get asked a lot, but it's, um, I noticed one of your notes here, 2020 is the US election year, so volatility is likely. Uh, nevertheless, for the past hundred years, no president has lost a re-election if the economy is expanding and the share market is strong. So obviously with this pandemic still happening, uh, unemployment rates rose substantially in the US, but are now dropping again. You know, that, that's sort of tethering either way. But what you've said there, which I think was great, is that if Biden comes in, he's got a stimulus package, say, in the Green Wedge area. Um, if Trump comes in, he's talking about a stimulus package in respect to being able to bring manufacturing back on shore. Of course, one of Australia's wealthiest individuals has taken advantage of that, being Anthony Pratt, uh, building his billion-dollar factories all around the US and uh, uh, stimulating towns' economies by building uh, factories in towns and things like that. So. I think what we're saying here is no matter either way it goes, there is an opportunity over the next few years after this election uh, that the US economy will still go strong, but emerging markets also look good because of the middle class growth, thus technology and resources. Yeah, I think that's a that's a fair summary. I think we will get the volatility yeah. um, when around that election time and particularly if it gets challenged, which it looks like it might do if, if it's close. Yep. But again, stepping back, I just think if you've got central banks and everybody with relatively high unemployment, all knowing that they have to stimulate governments, knowing that they have to stimulate, um, there has to be support there. Um, we're just at that point in time in the cycle that that's what we should see happen no matter who gets into power. Uh, and it'll just be tailored towards a different direction of the market. Okay, one last, one last question. We do have large debt here in Australia and same in the US. And we are doing a, uh, well, we did a podcast in, uh, I think it was the 9th of September on budgeting and investing. But basically it was a case of that um, with the middle class emergence in the emerging markets and in uh, areas like China and India, a lot of the new middle class who purchase things don't do it on credit. Uh, they actually do it out of cash flow, no differently than how my parents did when they first immigrated to Australia. They saved their money, then bought the TV rather than, well, there's no credit cards to go and buy TV on a credit card back then. So, so based on that, there does seem to be that in the emerging markets, a lot of money will actually be by the new middle class will be spent from cash flow, not necessarily from credit which can stimulate the economies quite substantially. And you usually would keep inflation lower in those markets as well as a result. And once again, correct me if you disagree. Um, so moving forward, those markets do with the idea of the investment in areas of software, technology, resources, et cetera, do look quite exciting for the global markets in general. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think banks and financial institutions have a very good history of being able to get into early stage countries and and change that dynamic. Uh, yes. I agree with you, but uh, you know, I am concerned in, I don't know what the time frame is, three, five plus years time when the cycle changes and interest rates start to go up, there are massive amounts of debt that will out there. I think we've just pushed everything down the road. So I think we've got a window of opportunity where all these, where we can still do really well, but 
at a point once that interest rate, once inflation kicks, and inflation is slow to build, but once it builds, it is hard to maintain. And I think once we get that and we get the interest rate starting to rise, then that's going to be time for a whole new conversation because I don't think we want to be invested in the market at that point in time because I think that's where the risk it will be very high. But as you said, I think we've got a number of years here where that won't be the case and there's some really good opportunities. Okay. Wonderful. Fantastic. Craig, thank you very much for your time today. Um, it's definitely been insightful and you can see the smile on Tony's face of how much he's enjoyed it as well as me. Um, so thank you very much for your time. Well, make sure you're talking to someone with uh, as much experience, if not to me, rather than arguing with all you young guys. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I stay out of it. I stay out of it. <laughs> all right, then, Craig, sincerely thank you for your time today. Yeah, greatly appreciate the opportunity to chat to you guys. It was, it was great.